0: Building is one of the great joys in life. The sounds of puzzle pieces coming together, the mind or hand calluses building up with each iteration, yet the actual building is only half the job, maybe even less. Building actually requires so much planning before a hammer hits the first nail. To illustrate this, let's say you're building a house, but instead of sitting down and planning with some blueprints and scheduling, you decide to just wing it in the beginning the steps appear straightforward and you'll avoid any major calamities but at some point the snags catch up with you and you will just be hitting unavoidably disastrous situations miscalculations of lumber will cause more than too many trips to home depot you'll end up leaving not enough room for electrical and plumbing and you may even build a room in the wrong place Now, as a software operator, I'm sure you see the parallels. We're all willing something into existence that hasn't existed before. And while our hands may not be as rugged as a builder, the structures we build require planning and perspective beyond the initial stages. You also need a guide to overcome barriers and obstacles and basically help you out of pits that you weren't aware of that you end up falling into. You need someone like Byron Dieter. For the past 16 years, as a partner at Bessemer Ventures, he has counseled a wide selection of companies and individuals through growth and hyper-growth. With the likes of Twilio, Service Titan, Canva, and many others, his arsenal is well-equipped to take on any project. Byron's builder advice is yours for free, coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle where we explore the truth behind the strategies and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Byron Dieter dives deep on business development. We talk about the tedious transition from perpetual software to subscriptions, the fundamentals of a stable business, efficient use of capital, and the single unlock to build something awesome. How did you get into the whole like, cloud game. Like, how how did we get here? You know, obviously you've got a background, you were an operator yourself, you went to Cal. Like, what's the story, at least the the medium version, not the short or not the long?
1: I started off going up and down Sand Hill Road as a founder, trying to get venture capital dollars for
0: my SaaS startup in uh, January 2000. Very interesting time right there. It was
1: a great time for three months, and then it was a horrible time for the next several years from a fundraising standpoint, but, you know, markets have good and bads, And so it was a great time for hiring after that, and we put our head down and got some work done. But I saw the tough side of fundraising, not only from the macro environment, but also, uh, more importantly, people didn't believe in SaaS. Yeah. People didn't believe in cloud. Cloud, didn't, as a term, really didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. But this idea that, in many ways, people thought it was the worst of both, where you had front-loaded all the expenses, mm-hmm. and then you back-loaded RevRec and cash collection. And literally, two-thirds of the meetings, people would tune us out on the first few slides. Yeah. And you could just see it happening. I remember vividly, one top-tier investor. We spent 20 minutes on slide one, had a reference to Salesforce, which I thought was a positive analogy. And we debated for 20 minutes whether Salesforce would ever make a penny of uh, free cash flow. And they just fundamentally said, like, this is idiotic. It's the worst of both models. Like perpetual software is beautiful because you drop it there, whether they use it or not, it doesn't matter. You get paid up front. You recognize revenue up front. Like, why are you trying to fight this? It was a really uh, philosophical slash religious debate that um, we were on the wrong side of for a long time.
0: That story kind of scares the shit out of me because it's like, what are we thinking right now that in 10 years we're like, oh my God, we were so wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the
1: beauty of the, the core cloud model is that people realize if you build good software and customers use it and love it, the leverage of the model is much more powerful over time than licensed software ever was. And that's the rub, you have to build good product because people will fire you, but I think both sides win in that deal. You don't have crap shelfware anymore, or at least not nearly as much and uh, and businesses get rewarded for it and you don't need to support multiple versions back products you don't need to have um, you know port to different databases you can have your entire dev team focused on building world class cutting edge stuff that customers are using and you get paid well for it and you can have 80% gross margins
0: if you do it right yeah absolutely from that point on you did raise cash you were hiring and you were in that 2000 2001 like post like just terribleness <laughs> you know and and you ended up having like a good exit there at IBM like what was that like? Because it was kind of pseudo 2008 as well, like was kind of a similar vibe that happened. Like what's so different? Cause we've been at a nice little height for a while now. Yeah, I mean, 2008 was nothing compared to the 2000-2001 yeah,
1: crash. Totally true, yeah. um, I mean, it was nuclear winter. And we had the good fortune of having raised a seed round with people that we knew well. All my prior bosses invested, our friends, our family. Uh, we'd raised that seed round. And then having worked in the venture industry a little bit before, knew the firms that we wanted to go to. And so even though the sky had fallen in March of 2000, we raised a Series A in uh, summer of 2000 from Bessemer and another some other great firms over time as well. And that's how I got to work with them as a firm. So David Callen at Bessemer Venture Partners came in, led our round, took our board seat, and really uh, took us under his wing and bet on us. And if you look back on it, it looks all straight up into the right because we've we managed the financings well so that we always had cash. We were never jammed. Ultimately, the business got to big scale, global, profitable. We're getting ready to go public, all that stuff. But along the way, I mean, it was brutal where we had customers go out of business at large scale, fire us all the time. We actually had to do um, layoffs at two different points in the company, which certainly at that point was the hardest thing I'd ever done, just to never put the core business at risk and control our own destiny and knowing that we may never get another penny of financing and just always be controlled in our growth. And that's how I got to know the the team at Bessemer. First and foremost, I think you you learn the most about someone when you're under stress. And... My you know, peers that were uh, in other venture back companies or leading other back venture companies had very different experiences. And mine was one where, when it was tough, when Staples threatened to fire us and debooked some revenue and I didn't know what to do, I literally would call the team over there and say, like, this just happened, crap, uh, help. And my peers were waiting for the good news to call and only calling when they got that deal or something. And that, I think, was very telling. And I think that tells a lot about the, the nature of the relationship and the dynamics that the firm puts in. Uh, in front of you. And now, as I've flipped over to the venture side and the benefit of making uh, our team and the investors a lot of money is it smoothed the path over to venture. But coming over, it's something I try to remember, which is uh, if our team's not comfortable in the first few slides of the board deck showing you the bad news and like focusing the discussion there, then you put them under pressure or there's not enough transparency or trust or whatever. And that's tough to operate under when you've got all these other pressures of just building a business. Nonetheless, you need all the help of your team and your board and people around you to, to make you successful.
0: In that you know post 2000, and then you had September 11th happen in 2001, and it just like hits kept on coming for tech. Then, what are the things that you know people don't remember or don't realize? Because there's a lot of advice on like, oh, we're going to go through a little bit of a downturn. Like, here's what you should do: look at your cash flow, look at your burn. What are the things that like you don't remember to to remember for the next time? Typically, I mean, there's a
1: whole litany of things that people went through. Certainly, people that did tough deals with structured deals and complex terms and things just got hammered, just washed out. And um, no longer controlled their own company and those sorts of things that was the extreme it didn't happen a lot But that was that was one case where just you saw investors take advantage of situations Mm -hmm. What happened more often though was that just companies ran ran out of runway and you hear the term a lot and people We've had a ten-year bull market a lot of the entrepreneurs have never conceived of a day where investors just are closed for business Mm -hmm. and uh, liquidity dried up and it dried up fast and so you'd be in a situation where it was a high quality company that had hit their plan, delivered on their goals, and they couldn't get a call returned. And investors just said, look, we're triaging our current portfolio. Like we can't think about what else is out there and come back in six months and we'd love to talk. And those situations are, are tough. And when people, greedy is the wrong word, it's more aggressive. When they got aggressive with just thinking through or just weren't focused on financing or those things, you got in a situation where they had to do massive layoffs to, to buy enough time to then you know go back out. And the internal thing that plays through even more today, I think, even in the upmarket, is when you have churn dynamics, when you essentially have your customers under pressure, then um, it compounds. And that's the thing that stuck with me as an investor, probably first and foremost for growth stage businesses, is those customer dynamics either give you a healthy base that you can always control. And when you have net negative churn that you think is sustainable, you can always slow your growth or cut back heads a little bit and have a long-term viable business. Whereas if your customers are firing you and you need sales and marketing just to get above water every quarter, you may not be able to play that game in a down market.
0: Yeah. As a founder, when you think about that time and you're obviously now mentoring, advising and, you know, really helping founders and companies themselves. Let's assume there's going to be a little bit of a, you know, bear market, you know, hopefully it's not a recession, et cetera. You know, no one really knows. But what's the advice that you give them from, you know, the experience that you had, you know, as a founder during that time? The single
1: most kind of driving force for a founder long term, I think, is just efficient growth. It rewards you in up markets, absolutely, but in particular volatile times or down markets, it gives you that ability to play offense while always having an insurance policy for the viability of the business. Yeah. And what we mean by efficient growth is all about this tradeoff of growth rate to burn and uh, the runway around it. As a founder, I would always think as our cash position in a flat growth scenario and in a cut scenario of, can I always get to break even? Is there always a way out? And as soon as we got to a certain scale, I forget what it was, but in that 5 to 10 million ARR range, with a, a base level of support team and engineering and whatever, and we had good net upsells, I knew that we were in a position where we could always drive through it. And this doesn't mean that you need to be defensive. Absolutely, we are hyper-growth investors. We want the businesses that are able to triple for many years but you've got to have the fundamentals of a stable business model so that if, if you need to tap the brakes and manage your cash flow, you can do it and coast into uh, more of that break-even state or more of that efficient model. And so if you look at the Bessemer IPOs, a steady foundational characteristic will be that their, their growth rate and their ARR ad, as an example, far exceeds their burn and that this, this interplay of kind of net value creation relative to burn is almost always a positive equation.
0: And what are some of the aspects that, like, to me, it's always seeking leverage with the cash, right? Like, it's always like, what are the what are the growth aspects that are going to bring us that tripling, right? Like, rather than just throwing like cash at scale, right? Like, what do you think about those levers and like, how do you help them with that? Because it's part of its cultural, right? Like, part of it's just like, hey, we don't spend money like it's water, just to spend it, right? How do you help them do that? Because I I can imagine like you're not writing small checks and you know you're now going into a founder and being like yeah, that doesn't mean you have to spend it all, but you kind of need to spend it in order to grow. And so like, how do you, how do you balance that? Yes, yeah, so the type of businesses we want to back are ones where it would be irresponsible
1: not to invest more in the business because the payback is so compelling. And everyone wins in that case. Uh, venture capital is dilutive. And so a founder has to buy into taking our money and that that trade makes sense. From our standpoint, we've got limited partners who have high return expectations. And so we model for a high return on our capital. And the way that works is if our capital unlocks massive value. And so, for the business that can take a million dollars and generate ten million dollars over, you know, a couple of years, everyone wins, and they're getting a multiple off that. And you've created massive value from it. And so, um, what we often look for in the short to medium term is a sales payback that uh, certainly is a multiple of capital. But increasingly, in product led businesses. A lot of them don't have sales teams. They're API-led businesses or freemium or those things. You're putting money into engineers or dev evangelists or you know or product marketing and corporate marketing to educate the market and ha- expose your product to them, and then the flywheel spins. But those are the fundamental characteristics we're looking for. And when we do a seed investment or a series A investment where it's just a concept and they're building product, that's the lever we're looking for where the founder sits down in that board meeting or sits down over breakfast and says, I think we can lean into this thing more. And I love it when a CMO comes into a board meeting or head of sales saying like, give me 10 million more bucks and I'll guarantee you this on the back end, right? I feel like we got a path to this on the back end. Yeah. Those are really fun discussions.
0: Because there's some folks who, you know, they give me the 10 million, I'll get you 10 million, right? And, and like the, the businesses in in and of themselves are probably like getting that flywheel going of like you put a dollar in, get four out, five out, 10 out, et cetera. Like when you look at a company, obviously you can look at their metrics. But if you take a step back and you couldn't look at their metrics, but you had to kind of predict hey, this company is going to probably be the 10 to 1, and this company is going to be the 1 to 1 or the 1 but 1. 1.5. Like, what are the characteristic differences you think there?
1: We look first at team and TAM, where you, you've got a team with the skills and the will to change the world, and then you've got the market size, the total addressable market to support it. And so um, early on, of course, there's no metrics to go on. And, and yeah. so when you're sitting down with Jeff Lawson talking about how Twilio can transform communications, Yeah, I mean, they had some tiny numbers. Actually, they were down month over month, the month we invested with our first seed check. Uh, because the numbers didn't matter at that point. It was all about the big vision. What can we go out and do? And what's the product portfolio? And we believe you can go do it. And so that sort of change the world mentality is really the early driver. Over time, obviously, when you get public, financial investors are going to look really at future free cash flows. And so there's this transition that venture investors go through, um, where over time, multiples and those things start to matter. And that's where this idea of efficient use of capital comes into play. And if you're going to take other people's dollars, take the dilution. Then, as a former founder and advising our founders now, there's some merit in insurance, of course, and some buffer. But overall, like, have a point of view of where you can effectively deploy those dollars. And if you don't know about it, then there's no ego or pride in fundraising for fundraising's sake. Like, I think sure. these these false milestones of, of round values really have got way too much hype around them. And the quiet businesses building value, I often love. I mean, frankly, some of our rounds are never announced until you know these companies are immediately pre-IPO where they sell for for huge numbers. Um, the founders are just like, look, I, I'm building something here. I don't necessarily need to to wave the flag. Customers are finding me products, rocking, and, and let's keep building up.
0: Is ever a situation where you go in and you know, even a portfolio company or someone you're thinking of investing in, and they're. LTV to CAC is like twenty five to one, and you're like, hold on a second, we need to spend some money. Like, there's something wrong. Like, do you, do you see that, number? We absolutely
1: do. Obviously, with high net upsells, it, the math you kind of throw it out because you get in this infinite, you know, yeah. sort of value, or you argue the terminal value of those things. Like, you just know it's really good. We've had a lot of those cases where the team sits down and says, "I've got a voicemail box full of calls from customers trying to buy." And I don't know what to do. And they're not being arrogant. They're just saying, like, I, I don't know how to how to score the leads. Like, where do I start? Yeah. There's 100 there. And there's probably 10 great ones in there. But I don't have a sales team. And so we need to make the self-service funnel better. And we need to figure out how to, like, escalate some to people. And we do these things. And, like, it's really working. But where do we start? And that's the fun part. That's where, like, a financial partner can add a lot of value. Yeah. Because... We're not brilliant, but we've worked with brilliant people. And so we've had 20 cloud IPOs. There's a lot of institutional knowledge in that community um, to bring to bear in terms of how do you get through these problems and how do you see around corners and and short circuit things to be smarter each successive time. And that's a lot of the value that we try to bring to these companies is just how can you see things faster, make decisions faster, bring people to problem to help resolve it. And if you can change the slope of that line a little bit and it compounds over many years, then, then collectively you're adding a lot of value.
0: Yeah. If you were starting a, like a SaaS or a subscription company today, maybe not vertical agnostic, like what are some of the elements that you would look for? Because what's interesting about some of your portfolio is you have like SendGrid and you have like Twilio, for example, now one. You know, there's sales folks and there's customer success folks at both ends, but they're not like heavy sales, like enterprise-y. And then you have some elements where like Gainsight, it's a little bit more like enterprise-y sales, bid market type yep. sales. Like, what kind of model do you look for? Would you start? What kind of, like, pricing model would you try to seek? Would it be something that was more API-driven? Like, what would you do, like, vertical agnostic, maybe?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because, well, I'll give you first the investor answer, which is there's so many different ways to build awesome businesses right now that it's not black and white. We just gave our updated State of the Cloud report. We talked through five new categories that are of particular interest for us in cloud computing, and they represent very different business models. Um, Some of them, as you said, are developer-centric, API-oriented, low friction. Some of them are mobile, vertical, industry-focused. Some of them are around democratization of software for a business user in this low-code, no-code world. And so we absolutely think that great businesses are going to be founded with all these different models. And the important thing is that they understand which model they're running and which play they're running so that they put the right frameworks around it and understand that if you're an SMB business, uh, you probably need to have a lower cost of sales. You probably have to expect higher churn rates. You need to think through the upsell and retention dynamics um, versus an enterprise, which will be the inverse of that. For my side, personally, I would probably skew more towards the lower friction, and I'd probably try to push the mobile side more. I continue to look for great enterprise mobile businesses. I really hope and believe that horizontal enterprise mobile apps will start to emerge and leverage the power of the cloud backends for distributed field workers and things like that. We're seeing it a bit, but where we're seeing a lot of it is around industry vertical apps. And so the Procore in construction, as an example, or Service Titan in uh, field services and plumbing HVAC in electrical, uh, Toast in retail and um, in the restaurant industry, yeah. where you have those types of products where the, the workers live in them all day, yeah. and you just nail a domain. And that could be fun to tackle a problem in a backwards industry with a large segment of the GDP and just say we're going to make this awesome. Yeah, we're in Boston, by the way. I don't know. Oh, yeah, fantastic! Yeah. yeah, so
0: and I know Kent. Kent Bennett, the yeah, number. he's a it's actually huge one of the things. first VCs I ever met when I started the company like six years ago. Like we were at some dinner or something mm-hmm. like that, and you know he was a screenwriter back in the day, and so we just jammed on that. He's hilarious, and he's an awesome human and a really good investor. Like yeah. he's he's a great partner. No, which is great. But it, Toast, I love because it's you know so many people have tried to solve that problem before. And there's still tons of people in the market, but they're just kind of taking it, you know, advantage of it in the right way in my opinion. Yeah, which is great.
1: And it's just, you nail these vertical domains, you bring cloud capabilities, a great mobile app to bear in in a market that's desperate for tech and great things happen. And they're also really smart, but you've got it when you get the markets right
0: and the product needs right, and you listen to customers, then great things will happen. A huge shout out to Byron for doing the podcast. Now you have a bevy of knowledge on business development. Today, we talked about the tedious transition from perpetual software to subscriptions, the fundamentals of a stable business, efficient use of capital, and the single unlock to building something awesome. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of the podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen. The podcast gods tend to like that sort of thing, and, you know, we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.